0: From SLB Radio in Pittsburgh, Crossing Fences. African-American boys and young men creating oral history showcasing the lives and accomplishments of local African-American men.
1: We was raised by the whole community back in the late 60s, early 70s. This is where I was born and raised. This is where... I've been at since the beginning, I never left. My dad used to take me to work with him, he used to work at a uh, pizza spot. Life is the greatest teacher, you will find out. The choices you make will be what you, you better make the right one.
0: From anesthesiologists to barbershop owners, entrepreneurs to engineers, and coaches to deacons, over 170 men have been interviewed. Today let's hear from Daniel LaBelle age 34, at the time of this interview.
1: I very much had a number of family members who all played significant roles in some form or fashion throughout my life and who always sort of pushed you to do as, to do as well as you can. The biggest influence probably came from the words of my grandfather. Um, I was at his home sort of fussing about the state of the community and the state of government and politics, and he always had a saying, essentially, that when you see a problem and recognize it, you have an obligation to address it. So when I was fussing about the current state of things, his sort of simple retort was, well, if you believe you understand and believe you can do better, then step forward and and actually try to do that. One summer break when I was back home, I met a gentleman by the name of Jake Wheatley. And at the time, he was working for a councilman by the name of Saluddin. I got to know Jake and he knew of my interest in government and my interest in politics. And I graduated from Kent State University and was actually looking for a master's degree. But prior to doing so, I got a call from Jake Wheatley and he said, would you be interested in interviewing for a position to work for a councilman? And so given I always had a general interest and didn't know how else you got into that field, I said, sure. And so based on that advice and the support of many others I had around me, I decided to run for office and succeeded. Technically, a council's person's job is, well, first and foremost, there's very little that you yourself make happen. What you have to do is coalesce everyone and work with your various partners. The city government is divided into two tiers. There's a legislative body, which I sit on, which is city council. Then there's the administrative body, which is the mayor's office. So what we do on council is we administer and pass legislation. And then the mayor's office is responsible for carrying the legislation forward and carrying the task out. However, in addition to that, each council member is also then giving a committee. I am now the chair of land use and economic development. And then oftentimes, in addition to our committees, the mayor may often appoint you to some board. The mayor appointed me to the Urban Redevelopment Authorities Board. The vast majority of development in some form or fashion comes through the URA. Our task is really two things. One, to help grow the city's population, and then two, to grow the actual tax base. For instance, if we look at the Hill District, we are involved in trying to get a new grocery store put in the community. You may have seen new housing along Dinwiddie Street will play a role in the development of the Lower Hill, where the Civic Arena site is being torn down. Other than that, the rest of your time, you're allowed to do with it as you choose. And so you begin to work on the issues that are of importance to you. I generally have sort of a a book that I normally carry around with me, and in it, there. are it's probably about 100 different things that I'm working on in some form or fashion. Over the course of a year, you always try to revisit it. Some things do get stuck in the political process. Some things may slow down for lack of financing. So if we look at the grocery store, for instance, the grocery store is an issue that's been on the table for some time now. But unfortunately, it was a gap in financing. And so we had to take a step back and begin really crunching numbers, figuring out where the $2 million are going to come from. And unfortunately for the public, all they see is inaction they don't necessarily see the work going on for months behind the scenes. And eventually we will figure out exactly what the gap is, how to fill it, and we'll move that piece forward. So it can be very frustrating at times. But nonetheless, you just sort of keep checking off what you're trying to accomplish. You periodically check back in with the key stakeholders. Oftentimes I'll sort of look at my book and realize all that I haven't done. At the same time, you then have to take pleasure in looking at what you have been able to accomplish, big or small. And then you always have to just communicate and try to be upfront, saying, this is what I said I was going to do. I've only accomplished 10 percent of task A, but I've accomplished 90 percent of task B. And I think if you're willing to have honest dialogue on both the community level and the political level, then usually more often times than not, things will move forward at some rate. Back in the 40s, 50s, into the 60s, and some would even argue now, there was a practice called redlining where banks would not loan to African-Americans. My grandfather felt that was wrong. He had started Lavelle Real Estate to fight the redlining issue, but quickly discovered, even if I could find you a home, now I have trouble finding you a mortgage, finding someone to lend to you. And he firmly believed that home ownership was the most important staple for anyone's future in terms of capital and investment and piece of the American pie. And so Dwelling House really began to support being able to one, find you somewhere to live, but then actually be able to finance that and allow you to get a mortgage and my grandfather. One of his largest fights was the multi-list. At the time, African Americans were not allowed in multi-list, meaning if I listed a home for sale, no one else could sell my home and I couldn't sell anyone else's home. So he fought that all the way to the federal level. And eventually it got ruled that African Americans should be allowed to list in multi-list, which then opened up the gates for all African Americans across the country to now participate in real estate.
0: This oral history was collected by youth interviewers Chaz Daniels and David Jones. Crossing Fences is made possible by the Heinz Endowments and was produced by SLB Radio Productions. Learn more at crossingfences.org.